My apologies, I didn't introduce myself. My name's Mordecai. My, uh, my good friends call me Morty. You guys look friendly. I'm a cobbler, and my dad was a cobbler, and his dad was a cobbler, and his dad was a cobbler, and we make specialty shoes in the city of Jerusalem. I hear you have a shoemaker in town named after a Greek goddess. Yeah, I picked up a pair. Not bad. Not bad. When I was just out of school, I was 17, my dad came to me one day, and he had a special client in the city of Jericho. And he... Uh, he, 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 he had to make sure the shoes arrived on a certain day and a certain time, and he asked me if I would personally take them. Now, normally, uh, I'd take our, our donkey, Jethro, but he's getting a little long in the tooth. So I was going to have to walk, and it's a long walk, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there's one problem. At night, it gets really dangerous. But I've had lots of friends make the journey, and no problem. I'm young. I'm tough. I'll be fine. At least that's what I thought. The naivety of youth. I got up really early that morning and I I hustled to the door and both my parents were waiting and my dad kind of gives me the manly side hug, go get them, son, gives me the shoes and mom's packed a lunch for me and I, I sneak in. I can still feel the warmth of the bread and the olive oil and she put an extra special treat in, my favorite, a little bit of honey and some sweet wafers. Mom kissed me on the forehead. I wiped it off. I'm too old for that, Mom. And I headed out. On the outskirts of town, I heard somebody call, Morty! And I looked over. It's my friend Simeon. Hadn't seen Simeon forever since school ended. It's like, come on in! In my my city, you can never say no to a good meal. So I went in, and we broke bread together. And uh, even though I knew I had to make good time, time got away from me. By the time I left, I was a little alarmed, and I knew I had a long way to go, and I scurried out, and I began the journey. And I'll be honest, I I thought I was in better shape than I was. Anybody else? I made the miles, but it's a long trip, and the sun was super, super hot. And it's pretty much downhill the whole way, but that wears on your body, too. And, And there's also beautiful vistas of the sea along the way, and I stopped a lot to take breaks. And then late afternoon came, and... Then early evening, and the sun started to set, and I frankly started to get a little concerned. And then before you know it, just like that, it was pitch black. You could barely see my hand in front of my face. I was pretty scared. I stopped in the crevice of a rock, kind of looking around, and I had a little bit of water left, a couple miles still to go. Saved the special treat for last and had the honey and the sweet wafers. That gave you a little energy. And then the attack came out of nowhere. Something hit me right here. I can still feel it on the back of my head, and I immediately went down into the dirt. I could still taste the dirt. And then the attack came from every direction. I was literally getting pummeled to death. I uh, didn't die, obviously, and I woke up the next morning. I don't know what time it was, but the sun was beating down upon me. And I was in really, really bad shape. I'd never felt pain like that. And I was laying in a pool of my own blood, and you look like nice folks, but I want to tell the true story. I didn't have a stitch of clothing on. And my face was swollen, and my one eye was swollen shut, and the other one had a little crack that I could see out. And I'm laying in the dirt, and I could kind of see the road. And I knew I was within a whisper of death. I knew I'd need a miracle. I called out to Yahweh to save me. 
And I was in and out of consciousness. When I woke up next, uh, I thought Yahweh had answered my prayer. Out of the little slit of my eye, I could see a man approaching in the road. And I thought I could make out the garb of a priest. Yes, a priest. Of course the priest will stop. But I had noticed this man got close and then he kind of scuttled away. I guess he wasn't a priest. The next time I came to, uh, another man was approaching. And I could see him carrying parchments and documents. And is that a Levite? If it's a Levite, I'm saved. This man got a little closer and he scurried away too. It must not have been a Levite. The last time my breathing was getting shallow, my, my mouth was so parched, I was barely hanging on. And I caught another figure coming. Maybe Yahweh had answered my prayer. And then as he got closer, I saw the garb of a Samaritan. And I'm like, oh no, not a Samaritan. They're half-breeds. They're dogs. I've never been near a Samaritan This man would certainly not stop. He'd rather spit on me than help me. But then shock of all shocks, this man got closer and closer and closer, and he put his hand tenderly on my back. I couldn't move, but I braced inwardly. I'd never been touched by a Samaritan. I was now unclean, but when you're on the brink of death, it kind of changes your perspective on things. And I don't remember much. I just remember incredible kindness. This man immediately put his cloak over me to shield me from the sun to give me honor again. He, he took his own clothes and he ripped them and he bandaged my wounds. He, he took his own wine and he treated my wounds. He took his own oil and he rubbed it into my, my skin that had gotten sunburned. And then he turned me over ever so slightly and cracked my parched mouth and he poured this clean, cool water in. And I remember what life was. He picked me up tenderly and he placed me on his donkey. I next woke up, I don't know how long it had been, I was a... Frankly, the best room I'd ever been in, the best bed I'd ever been in, and a kind lady was sitting in front of me, and she just smiled when I awoke, and it took me a minute, but she asked my name, and I'm like, Mordecai, Jerusalem. She's like, we'll get word. We'll get word you rest. She said, your friend, friend, has taken care of everything. Man, that did change me forever. I'm not talking physically, although my knee still acts up when a storm's arising. That man changed my heart. I could never pass by a person in need. I mean, how could I? Well, big reveal. My name is not Mordecai. My name is John. I'm a pastor here, and welcome to our folks that are online. You know how they give... Uh, the Oscar for Best Acting. They also give these razzles for Worst Acting, so that's probably like what that was. <laughs> but I wanted to demonstrate what Hannah asked us to do last week. And, and St. Ignatian created this so many centuries ago, and it's called Imaginative Reading. And I gave you a little glimpse into my head. That's not for the faint of heart, <laughs> to see what's going on in my head. But as I enter into these great stories, and of course today we're talking about the Good Samaritan, I think it's such a beautiful practice led by the Spirit of God to enter into the stories. And for me, as I've wrestled with the story since I was a young boy, and just layers upon layers have gotten peeled back over time and new meaning, I always connect with who was that man? We don't know who he was. What was his experience? How was he changed? And so that's my own journey. Thank you for your, your patience. And it's not acting, whatever that was. Hopefully it brought the story alive to you in a new way. We're in a series on the Gospel of Luke. And we're focusing on this principle of the great reversal. We think that Luke, as he constructed this gospel and gives an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, consistently draws this thread throughout his gospel of a Jesus who is bringing a kingdom that will turn everything inside out and upside down. 
including any of us that care to enter into that story. And that's the invitation for us, New Hope, to enter in, that we would be changed as we encounter Jesus. If we really encounter him, we can't help but to be changed. So we, we've been traveling along verses, uh, chapters 1 through 9, kind of in, in a narrative flow, just like Matthew and Mark uh, do the same. But then Luke does something different. At chapter 9, verse 51, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can open to that on your, on your phones or if you brought a physical Bible. And Luke shifts. And Luke uh, has about 10 chapters of material that isn't covered in any other gospel. And it's, it's a road trip. So Jesus is, is, is now transitioning his focus to Jerusalem where he will go and die. And he journeys with his disciples on a road trip through Samaria to Jerusalem or done. And as I picture it, this is his last shot to help these young men get a glimpse of what kingdom living is and get it deep in their bones because they'll be responsible for building out the church. That's how I see it. And Jesus tells story after story after story that we call parables. So I want to set this up a little bit. We thought it would be really cool for Lent to kind of switch and enter this stage of Luke. So it won't be as much like narrative stories, but there'll be a lot of stories. And each week of Lent, and that started uh, this last week, I gave up sports talk radio. Anyone else? Sports talk radio? No, I'm the only one. Uh, you guys may think it's not a sacrifice. For me, it is. My finger goes to the radio all the time when I get in the car. But it creates space for me to hear God. So we're, we're in the season of Lent, and we talked about that a lot, lot, lot last week. And so for this season, every Sunday, we're going to look at a different kingdom story. As Jesus prepared his disciples, he'll prepare us as well to enter the kingdom. So let me set that up a little bit. If you look at chapter 9, verse 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, literally, he set his face to Jerusalem. That's kind of what it reads. And this goes back to the transfiguration that we, we touched on last week where Jesus' face glowed and you know Moses and Elijah build that crazy scene that we, we touched on last week. Luke's kind of touching using that same imagery. Now Jesus' face, it has been illumined that God says, this is my son and whom I love, is set for Jerusalem. Jesus knows as a man who he is and what he's called to do. And he puts his game face on. So that's a shift in the text. And so now how is Jesus going to use this last little stretch? Maybe this last you know, week or so. It's like 70 miles a trip from, from where they're at to, to uh, Jerusalem. He's got this last road trip to really invest in these young men he spent the last couple years with. That's kind of what's going on. And then a couple scenes Luke puts in. We want to have really good context as we get into the story today. That he sets up for this road trip. Uh, one is he sends some of his disciples ahead to prepare the way into Samaria. And they're resolutely rejected. And they come back kind of with their tail between their legs. And the other disciples are like, how dare they, those Samaritans? Let's bring down fire from heaven and burn them. And it's just like, whoa. And it's startling how quickly followers of Jesus resort to violence when they don't get their way. I don't know if you've noticed that. And Jesus is going to give them a better way, another way. Then we have the succession of three different potential disciples that kind of come with their applications. And they want to follow Jesus. And each time Jesus lays down a demand for them, a different demand, and it's too much, and they go away. And Jesus is laying down that idea that to be a disciple, it's not something we kind of add on to our lives, like this extra cool little thing, like I just do church when I can. No, it's death into life, and it's costly. So that's kind of flowed out there as we get to this. And then finally, he sends out these 72 to kind of do another advanced mission, and they come back opposite, and they've had a lot of fruitfulness and success, and their minds are blown what can happen when we give over our life to the power of the Holy Spirit and God. 
And they're like, people are being healed and people are responding to Jesus. And Jesus is excited. Jesus said, blessed are they who can see. And it, it tunes us in as we're readers to seeing differently. We live in this world in which we can see tangible stuff, but there's just kingdom coming that we're called into. We're supposed to bring into existence that we can't fully see yet. And so Jesus is like, now for the next, you know, ten chapters, this is how Luke thinks about it, we're, I'm going to help you see. I'm going to help you see kingdom reality. And the main tool that Luke uses and Jesus uses is parables. So, uh, what is a parable? This is how I define it. This is my own working definition. Uh, parables are short stories that help us imagine a different reality or kingdom reality. So the actual Greek word means to throw alongside. And scholars debate on what it means. It's kind of a mysterious word. I think of it this way. It's kind of like when you're out on a hike in the middle of nowhere and something random is there. You're like, what is that? This is weird. And it causes us to stop and think about things differently. And that's how parables serve. There are these, there, there are going to be some weird stories. You're like, that's in the Bible? What does that mean? That's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants us to like look at him and be like, whoa, what is that? How do I think about reality in a new way? 35% of Jesus' words are parables. Isn't that astounding? Soren Kierkegaard, he argued that like direct communication doesn't do so great when we're talking about kingdom things. Direct communication would be me trying to argue you into a position by giving you facts. How's that going in our world? Not good, We don't respond well to that. It's like an affront, and we get defensive, and then we argue back with our own facts. Kierkegaard argued, and I think we see this in Jesus, that to understand the reality of the kingdom, we need indirect communication. We need like back channels, back doors that catch us by surprise, and that's what these stories do. It's not God talk, this kind of Sunday school direct communication. It's these things that catch us by surprise. And we're like, what? One person uh, said, parables deceive us into seeing the truth. I love that. Or parables create imaginary gardens that have real toads in them. These are imaginary stories, but there's truth there. And as Jesus says again and again and again, will we have ears to hear? That's your question to answer. Will we have ears to hear? Uh, Great, great writers who are followers of Jesus knew this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien would be examples. They were brilliant scholars in their field. They could have used all their lives to just give us direct communication and tell us these things about that. But they chose to give their lives to writing stories. Tolkien left us with the Lord of the Rings to tell us about the kingdom, and I'm so grateful he did. So, uh, as we enter in, don't enter in with the mindset of like post-enlightenment, what does this mean? You're not going to get the answer. Allow yourself to enter into the parable. What what I say is, allow yourself to enter the story and allow the parable to enter you. And then what will happen? So let me pray for us. We need we need the Spirit of God to to help us do that. And then Stuart's going to come and and read the, the parable again. And I want you to practice imaginative reading. Close your eyes, if you will, and imagine, be a character in the story. What was it like? What do you smell? What do you see? What do you sense? How do you see God differently, yourself differently, others differently? Holy Spirit, we just pray you would run wild in our hearts and our minds. We're literally unable, God, as humans, to kind of get ourselves out of these mental boxes we have ourselves in. That's why your son just snuck up on us with these stories. They give us a taste of the kingdom come. They're like putting on a glasses that allow us to see the tiny, intricate, beautiful details of kingdom come. And God, help us as a community to enter the story today and help the story to enter us, transform how we see ourselves, 
how we see others and how we see you for your glory and for the sake of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be coming down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. One scholar says this story is, is like a booby trap on the page. It's a scripture booby trap. It's like something that looks really safe. It doesn't look explosive until you start to play with it. And we're so used to this story. Even if you're not from the church world and you're a guest here today, we're so glad you're here and, and you don't know much about the Bible, you probably have heard this story. And it's, it becomes safe that way. It's not safe. I mean, it could be for you if you stayed at a distance this morning, but I'm challenging you not to. Enter it and allow it to enter you and see what happens, but beware. <laughs> it will change you. So let's, there's a little prequel before Jesus tells the story. So let's get into this conversation. I kind of talk about this conversation having three rounds. They're kind of going back and forth. So we have a lawyer. This isn't a lawyer like our version of lawyer. This is someone who's an expert in the Torah or the law of Moses. This was an honorable profession. And I've always traditionally read this story through the lens of kind of a judgy spirit kind of looking down on this person. And I'm trying to do better on that. I'm trying to start with not telling the worst possible story about someone else. I think that's a good thing. And so it just says that this person approached Jesus to put him to the test. We don't know he has nefarious objectives here. We don't know that he... It doesn't say he's trying to trap Jesus. He could be. It just says he's trying to test him, which was his job. His job was to be a scholar. His job was to know God's word and protect God's word. And there was all kind of crazy teaching going on in these days, like there are today. Part of my job as a pastor is like, that's not what the Bible says. Like, don't, don't say that. This is, he could have just been doing that. He could have just been testing it to make sure this kind of ragamuffin, vagabond rabbi, this teacher, these provocative things is locked in and is not a, is, is not a, a heretic, frankly. Now, he could have been trapping him. We don't know. Or he could have also, like Nicodemus, who came late at night, been really moved deeply by Jesus. 
and wanted to know more. We simply don't know, so let's not put that on this man. It just says he wanted to test him. So the question he asked him is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a rabbinic question that rabbis talked about in the first century. This wouldn't have been a, a new idea. And it's essentially saying, well, how do we please God? How do we please God, Jesus? Tell us your view. He's testing him. Jesus uh, turns it around and responds to him with a question. He's like, well, what do you think? Now, this is also a typical way rabbis would reason, a question with a question. Uh, Eli Wiesel, he's a, he's a Jewish writer. Uh, he, he was asked once by a journalist. This journalist said, I noticed that Jews often answer questions by asking another question, why do you do that? And Eli responded, why not? So, I mean, it's, it's kind of right. And so it's not, I don't think Jesus is being like, like testy with this guy or trying to be a jerk. This is how they would reason. It's actually effective. But it does change the power dynamics. If this man was trying to trap Jesus, the trap is sprung. Because now everybody turns in the crowd to him. <laughs> and it would have been an easy question for this man to answer. It would be like asking a PhD in math to balance your checkbook. It's, it's, it would be simple for this man to answer. And he answers correctly. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a combination of uh, Deut- Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, known as the Great Commandment. It was at the heart of the Shema, which faithful Jews in the first century and even today would pray in the morning and the evening. The man answered correctly, and Jesus affirms that. So round one kind of ends with a draw. Round two begins, and the lawyer asks a follow-up question, which I think, again, scholars think was, was a standard topic of debate in the first century. He says, but who is my neighbor? And now Luke does say he's trying to justify himself. So now he's kind of back on his heels a little bit. And what he's trying to do is Jesus is like, yep, yeah, like that's true. We're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves. Like that's the expanse of what we're called to love. And he's like, well, how broad is that expanse? And there was this thought in the first century that a person's neighbor was another Jew who was faithful. Well, that's a pretty narrow field, right? Suddenly you don't really have to love that many people. You just have to name, uh, you know, love this narrow field. So Jesus doesn't come back with another question. Jesus comes back with a story. The story that I tried to act out and Stuart just read and hopefully you entered into. Uh, it is true that from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. It's, there's a picture that will, will show kind of what it's like today if you went there. And it's all the way downhill, 3,500 feet. Uh, descent. So you're going all the way down here. It's, it's, and it was very dangerous. It was known as one of the most dangerous highways in the ancient Near East. Because you can see, right? It's lonely, late at night. There's robbers, bandits. They're just trying to take anything they can. And so this man, that, that we don't know his name, we don't know who he was, that's kind of the heart of the story. Uh, he was robbed, stripped, beaten, left half dead. Next to death is what Luke says, unconscious. So clothes would have been taken. He would have he would have been laying with no clothes on because clothes were valuable in that time. But fortunately, a priest approaches from Jerusalem. Now we think about half of the priests that served in Jerusalem lived in Jericho, and so they would go for two weeks and they'd serve there and then they go back. So it would have been this would have been a first century reader would have been like, oh yeah, a priest would have come along. So. This priest is is approaches the man, and again, I have always just been quick to judge. The priest, like, dude, you're such a horrible priest, you know, because you did kind of the end around. And like, let's not do that. So there's, there's all kind of reasons he may have chose to do the end around. One, if you, if priests weren't supposed to touch or get near dead bodies. If they did, they were unclean. And to get clean again, to be a priest to his people would have been very expensive and time consuming. 
He also might have said, that dude's way dead because it didn't look good. He's like, I, I don't know what's going on there. He could have thought the bandits were still in the area. There's all kind of reasons. And let's be honest, followers of Jesus, we do the same thing. We have all kind of reasoning as we approach situations like this. Sometimes it's warranted. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But he didn't get near. He did the interim. So Jesus' audience are like, oh, that's unexpected. So then comes a Levite. And so a priest, like in church vernacular, the priest would be like the lead pastor. The Levite would be like the executive pastor, like Mike. So Mike's up. He's coming in. Yeah, Mike, you. So you're coming in with your scrolls and, you know, your, your, you know all the kind of stuff you carry. And, and a Levite was highly respected. And so, again, the Levite, by law, was allowed to get closer to a body that a priest, and Luke says the Levite did, got closer to kind of take a look, maybe poked <laughs> with a stick or something or a book. And did the end around. Benefit of the doubt, same reasons this person might not have gotten involved. Maybe the man was still unconscious. And probably, maybe Mike would think this, maybe not, the Levite was thinking, well, if the lead pastor didn't do anything, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, I'm just going to go right, go right on around here. I don't, I don't want to get involved in this, in this business. So again, let's be careful not to judge because that has been us, I think, and can be us. So again, but the crowd's kind of surprised by this. Whoa, they both passed him by. That's not cool. And then comes the Samaritan, kind of like you can hear the crowd murmuring. Because Samaritans, this is not hyperbole, there was a brutal divide. Brutal divide. Like going back to the, 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 the road trip, Jesus chose, we're told in John's gospel, to go through Samaria for the first road trip to meet the woman at the well, if you know that story. That was their first road trip. Now here's their last one, he's doing it again, guaranteed his teenage disciples were grumpy about this. Because uh, I don't know if the map came up earlier, but but if, if we can bring that up, then there was an end around. So you can go around, and most people did, if they're going from the northern part of the country down to Jerusalem, which they did for the feasts and festivals, you would do the end around. It took more time. If you had to do an expedient journey or you were in a rush, sometimes you went through. But it was dangerous for a Jewish person. Jesus has just made a regular custom of just going right through Samaria. And that's his last road trip. But it's because Jews hated Samaritans. That's not hyperbole. They considered them unclean, to be dogs, to be half-breeds. So to have the Samaritan enter the story, there's kind of a, oh, they would have been murmuring. There weren't Samaritans, you know, maybe on the outskirts of the crowd, but probably not in the crowd when Jesus is teaching. So people are thinking, for sure, the priest of the Levite walked by the Samaritan. Well, here's where the story gets dangerous. For that crowd, for us. The Samaritan does not do the end around, but the Samaritan comes and, and shows us what mercy looks like. It says it had compassion on him. That word means uh, two instruments that are in tune with another, two voices that are harmonizing. He saw the man and entered into his state fully to the point that it caused him to show mercy, which is always tied to action. Here's my cloak. Here's my clothes. Here's my oil. Here's my wine. Here's my credit card to cover all expenses of the hotel. What more can I give? He responded the way anyone should respond that follows Jesus. That's why we call this the parable of the good Samaritan. But for the original audience, that would have been a massive, I can't even explain this to you, a massive oxymoron. They would have been like, a good Samaritan? (laughs) That's just literally impossible. So Jesus comes back out of the story, and then round three, he turns the lawyer's original question around and asks, uh, who acted like a neighbor? Remember, the original question was, who is my neighbor? Trying to narrow the field. Jesus tells the story and then comes back out of it, looks at the lawyer, who's probably just stunned silent at this point. What is this man talking about? A good Samaritan? And he's like, who is the neighbor? But he's boxed in at this point. Everybody's listening. And he answers correctly. Let's give him credit. 
And he says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, yep, go and do likewise. Got you. <laughs> In the best possible got you way. Uh, so as we, as, we, as we look at this parable, we, we have to enter into it. If we come to this and we're so, I, I admit to you, I'm like this. So I'm just trying to reconfigure our brains for this stretch of the series. We're so bent on coming and saying, like, Pastor, tell me what it means. What does this mean? That's post-enlightenment thinking. And that's fine for some parts of Scripture. We will lose our way with these parables if we ask that. It's not looking for a meaning. The man, the lawyer, got the answers right, but he missed everything. And the parables help us to get at the heart of the truth if we'll enter it and we'll allow it to enter us. I don't know what that experience is going to be like you, but I'm going to share my experience of allowing it to enter into me, and maybe there'll be common ground. That's the best I can do, because there is no meaning for me to tell you about it. I'm just going to tell you my experience, and I've been journeying with this parable since I was a kid. Every time I'm brave enough to re-enter it, it changes me, and it changes some. That's how parables work. So kind of put aside that thing and just enter into it. Just let's have ears to hear. So I think the first thing is, is I enter into it it, it radically expands the definition of neighbor. If we're starting with that initial question, the man asks, who is my neighbor? And I think that's a, a question really all of us subconsciously act when we choose to get involved or not get involved with helping people. Who is my neighbor? The word neighbor is from the Old English, and it's two words that means near dweller, near dweller. Some of you live in neighborhoods. Some of you don't. But if we go with that definition of near dweller, that's a very narrow field of obedience. That I just have to love and show mercy to my near dwellers. It has to mean more than that for us. And Jesus' story tells us, of, of course it does. It radically expands it. They would have answered in the first century, who is my neighbor? They might have answered righteous Jew. But what they were saying is people who look like me and think like me and act like me. Let's be honest, we're the same way. We might add a fourth one. Our neighbor is someone who looks like us or thinks like us or acts like us and here's the uncomfortable thing and votes like us. Ooh. Right? We narrow the field. People call that tribalism. People call that othering. We do it all the time. This parable blows that up. It can't sustain that type of thinking if we truly follow Jesus and we allow it to enter us and we enter the parable. So that's the first thing I, I, I experienced. I, going back to seminary, uh, Howard Hendricks was one of my professors. And, and Howard, we called him prof. I had him his last year before he retired. And he was the most beloved professor ever at Dallas Seminary. You had to take his class. He taught how to, how to study the Bible. And was so creative and so fun. And he loved Jesus so much. And everybody just, other classes you'd skip or sleep in sometimes, full confession. This one you didn't. And everybody had to take it, so there's like 120 students in. Would-be pastors, here we go, you know, we're excited, we want to know how to study the Bible, we were, we're all like, you know, 19, 20, 21, kind of, you know. And so we're, we're in there, and uh, and we, we got to the point in the course where he was teaching us how to study parables, and Good Samaritan was was the, the parable we we're going to say. So he sent us home with the assignments to study the Good Samaritan, think about how to study parables, and he would do this, I don't know how long he did it, but he'd do it every semester, the next day, we arrived at class, and he hired an actor to be outside the building and act like they were in mortal distress and kind of unhoused in the whole thing. How many students do you think stopped as we scurried in to learn how to study the Good Samaritan? <laughs> Not this guy. Isn't that ironic? He knew. He knew. Prof knew 
that we were going to miss it. And that was that's the thing. I don't remember what he told us about parables. I, you can remember that. And as we as we encounter people in our path, we uh, we we can we can deem them invisible. We talked about this two weeks ago, where Jesus saw the woman with the bleeding condition, and she was invisible to everyone else but Jesus. And followers of Jesus and Church, we have to start seeing the invisible people. We have to. And this, Luke brings us back to that, this principle. This man was invisible, except to the Samaritan who had eyes to see. He had been transformed. He saw differently. George Saunders is a, he's a professor of literature at, at Syracuse University. He's one of, I think one of our generation's best writers. He gave a commencement address years ago and, and he said this. So here's something I know to be true, although it's a little corny and I don't quite know what to do with it. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was there in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, and mildly. After the sermon two weeks ago, and I really challenge you to see people in your path, uh, Kelly, who's on staff here, uh, she's kind of the glue to everything that goes on, so we love you, Kelly. Thank you. Uh, her and her husband, Bill, uh, they go every year up to Mount Hood, and they did uh, kind of a day in the snow, some hiking and stuff like that. So she said that the sermon was in the passage was kind of rattling around of their spirits, and they were trying to kind of watch more and look. And lo and behold, they got to a rest area at the end of their day, and they looked over on a bench, and there was, there was a woman wearing all black, and she was kind of huddled up. It looked like she may have been crying in distress. I don't know. I've seen many of those things in my life, and I've kind of gone the other way, I'll be honest. But this was, this, they were in it. This was inside of them. And so they approached her, and they said, hey, are you okay? And she's like, no, I'm not. She said, the person who brought me here left me and abandoned me. Um, I've been here for hours. Um, my cell phone's out. No one will answer. I can't even use it anymore. I'm thirsty, and I'm hungry, and I'm cold, and I'm scared. And so Bill immediately got the car, and they brought it around, and they warmed it up, and they put her in the back seat, and in their trunk, I guess they carry like like extra water and extra food, and they kind of laid it out in front of her. They had a, a charger for their phone. I guess if you're going to be abandoned, Bill and Kelly are who you need to run into. Like that's the, and so she, she charged her phone, and then they helped her problem solve, and they figured out a bus was coming. She, she's from Central Oregon in a half an hour. And after several different calls, they had somebody from back home that purchased her ticket. They connected with the bus driver. And later, Kelly said they realized the bus driver and the person who purchased their tickets and, of course, Bill and Kelly were all followers of Jesus. How cool is that? And as the bus pulled away, Bill kind of turned to Kelly. He's like, well, that was cool. And at least we don't have to drive her all the way to Central Oregon because I was willing to do that. And Kelly's like, I know you are. I know you are. So at least somebody listens to the sermons. Thank God, you know. So <laughs> thanks, Kelly. Thanks for your example. She told us that in our creative TV. I love it. So there's, as I enter it, there's deep, there's deeper stuff here though. So our, 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 who is our neighbor? That gets radically expanded. But then, don't you love how Jesus flips the question? I've long wrestled with that. It, 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 I'm still wrestling with it. But he flips the question from a, a passive question, who is my neighbor, to an active one. Who will be a neighbor? Whoa. That's a dangerous question. Eugene Peterson, kind of my mentor and pastor, he says that this is not a parable meant to define neighbors. This is a parable meant to create neighbors. Isn't that profound? But here's the deal. We can come to that and we can say, oh my gosh, that's such a heavy weight. And, and then the danger is this becomes some kind of ethical story that every person we encounter on our path that has a need, we've got to pull up our ethical bootstraps and just try to be good people. And that we don't have it within us to do that, frankly. I mean, I love you guys. We just don't have it. We'll fail. 
This is not a parable of how we can be good people. This is a parable of death and resurrection. And what I mean by that is every parable we'll encounter on the way to Jerusalem has that theme of death and resurrection. And here's the deal. You are the man on the road. And I am the man on the road. That's what we have to see. We have been raised from the dead to new life by God's grace. And if we inhabit that, then all of a sudden the ability to show mercy to someone we encounter who is also in the throes of death doesn't come from like trying to be good people. It comes from the grace of God. The experience of mercy should naturally lead to the expression of mercy. If we encounter someone in our path and we have no desire whatsoever to help them, I'm not sure that we've really encountered the gospel and the good news, to be honest. And so that's the next level truth that I'd heard to like, that's me, that dude. That's when I was telling the story up here, I could, I could talk about it. Because the gospel tells me by looking to Jesus, I have been raised from death to life. So we encounter people in our past, it should forever change us. The early Christians, they understood this. Uh, they, they were not perfect people. Just read the letters. They were kind of a dumpster fire a lot of times, to be honest. But they got this. The plagues rocked the early, the early centuries. In, in, in 165 AD, a plague, uh, probably smallpox, killed one-third of the population. Just let that sit with you for a second. A hundred years later, another plague hit, and 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome were in body bags. And yet, we, the historians tell us, people flooded out of the city whenever a plague would hit. Guess who entered the city to care for the sick? Can you guess? We know this. Followers of Jesus, who are willing to give their very life because they believe the gospel to be good news and true. And it literally changed the world. And so they, they, they would enter it, and they, they would minister and give their lives, and some did. And the Council of Nicaea was in AD 325. It's best known for the Nicene Creed, which is one of our great creeds. But I love this. At that same council, as they wrote this incredible doctrinal statement that tells us what we believe and is still true, they said also... Every town that has a cathedral and every cathedral that will be built also has to have a hospital. Isn't that cool? That's our legacy followers of Jesus. This is awesome. They got it. They understood. And yet I understand telling you that, like, it, like, it can put a huge weight. You're like, John, like, there's so much need. I don't know if, it, you know, I've been alive for a long time now. I don't know if I've ever encountered time there's so much need. Where do we start? What do we do? And I guess I would bring it back to the analogy of the passage and say, we're called to do what we can for those in our path. And like, let's like just bring it down to that localized level. And I think that's helpful for me. Mother Teresa would always uh, tell this, the, the starfish story. And maybe you've heard it before, but it's a little boy that uh, uh, like, you know, a thousand starfish got swept up onto the beach and were baking in the sun and dying. And the tide had gone out and this little boy was walking down and just Taking one and chucking it back in, taking one and chucking it back in, taking, saving their life. And as I heard the story once, uh, a businessman sees him from afar and is like, that's weird, that's so inefficient, like, that's not gonna help, like, what's he doing, this little boy? It approaches the boy and says, hey, hey boy, like, what are you doing? You can't, what difference is this gonna make? Look at them all. And the little boy looks at him and he picks one up and he chucks it and he's like, made a difference to that one. And I think that's a really helpful mentality when we get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed, right? Everything that's going on in the world, it's horrid. But as followers of Jesus today, like in in your path, who's there? And what can we do to love them as we have been so loved? What, what What is mercy? Mercy is what love looks like. It's all that it is. 
What, how can we love the person in our paths for the glory of God and for the sake of the world? And yet there is a, there's a deeper meaning to this story. This came, I was reading this time, preparing for this passage again, Father Robert Capon. He's a, he's a Roman Catholic writer, and he writes on the parables. And it stunned me when he said it, and I never thought of it, to be honest. And I think it's the deepest truth that I experienced in this, that the man in the road, in the story, as Jesus tells it, is Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is going all the, all the way to Jerusalem to literally be brutally killed for me and for you, to experience death so he can be raised to life and give life to all. I think this came home for me when I thought about that reflection, and then I remembered Matthew 25, and Jesus says this to his followers. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared before you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then those entering the kingdom are confused in the passage. And they're like, when did we feed you and give you water and house you and clothe you? This is weird. And Jesus responds, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You're going to encounter, I hope you do, I pray you do. I think God does this kind of thing. You're going to encounter people today in your path that have need. Certainly this week, certainly this month, certainly this year. We want to be a church that doesn't sidestep. And so as you come to them, like we could quickly be like, yeah, I'm not sure if they're my neighbor. Well, I hope this story just blows that up. There's not a lot of wiggle room. They're your neighbor. And if you try to wiggle out of that, go to that deeper level, like, well, it really doesn't matter because you're called to be a neighbor to anyone in your path because you were the person in the road once. And if that still doesn't work and you encounter them, then just look at them and say, they're Jesus. They're Jesus. And how could we ever pass Jesus by? Father, thanks for the story. Whew. Our minds, the way they're constructed, God, we, we come up with all kind of ways to not make these stories mean what they do. And we come up with all kind of defense systems, at least I do, to keep the truth out. And I pray against that, God. I think that's a work of the evil one. And I pray you'd shield our minds and hearts from the evil one and allow the story to fully enter our hearts, God, and our minds and our bodies. Uh, transform us as individuals, but more importantly, and most more as a church community. That, that New Hope, whatever we're known for, God, and not for any kind of notoriety, please, none of that, God. But if anybody knows us for anything, they'd be like, that's the church that doesn't step aside. That's a church that, that sees the people in their path that are vulnerable and in need and will give the clothes off their back for them. Can I do that work in me? Uh, do that work in our community? Uh, grab a hold of us, God, and change us. Um, we love you. Thank you for not giving up on us. and Thank you for inviting us uh, into this incredible journey where we get to welcome in kingdom come uh, to Portland as it is in heaven. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen.